you have a Bible with you, open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. We're in the very last verse, verse 53, all the way through chapter 8, verse 11. So if you have a Bible, if you can open up there, we're also going to be looking uh, this morning at this story about uh, the woman caught in adultery. And so the title for the morning's message is just that, the woman caught in adultery, John chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? To this, said, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning as we consider this story, as we consider a look into the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we consider the fact that we are all guilty, that we are all filled with sin, that we all deserve your judgment. And yet here in this passage today, we see your grace We see your kindness that leads us to repentance. Speak to us today, I pray, through our time here, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. This story about the woman caught in adultery and who was brought before Jesus is one of the most well-known stories in all of the Bible. But if you've ever taken a Bible class on the New Testament, or if you're just a careful student of the Word, you may have noticed that this particular passage has been questioned for centuries. The fact that this passage has been under examination is demonstrated when you look in your English copy of the Bible and see the fact that it's set off in brackets there from John 7:53 through John 8:11 and the reason for those brackets is that this particular story has not been included in the earliest Greek manuscripts on this gospel as you know our english bible are translations from the greek and while we don't have the original autographs of the greek we do have over 5000 copies of the greek manuscripts which are all copies of the original the story of John 7, 53 through 8:11 has been absent from many of the earliest translations. Furthermore, when it has been present, it has been found in different places of the Gospel of John, like after John chapter 7, verse 36, 
after John 7, 44, after John 52, or at the very end of the Gospel of John in John 21, 25. There also have been some translations that have placed this story after Luke chapter 12, or chapter 21 rather, verse 38. Many of the manuscripts which do not include the passage mark this text to indicate the question mark around its authenticity of whether or not it should be included in the canon. D.A. Carson, well-known scholar of the New Testament, writes this, quote, These verses are present in most of the medieval Greek manuscripts, but they are absent from virtually all early Greek manuscripts that have come down to us, representing great diversity of textual traditions, close quote. It is also true that with a careful examination, it reveals that the vocabulary and the style of the words used in this story are different than the rest of the gospel and the writings of John. The science of textual criticism weighs and evaluates thousands of existent texts in the New Testament. There are different families and different schools and different copies, and some of those families are considered to be more accurate than others. I couldn't agree more with the late R.C. Sproul who wrote on this, quote, but the copies don't always agree in every detail. With respect to the main substance of Scripture, more than 99% are in full agreement in all of the families, of all of the copies. But in less than 1% of the text in the Bible, there, there are variant readings that are found. No major doctrine of the Christian church is affected by these variant readings, close quote. So even though this has brought some suspicion over this text's divine inspiration, the overwhelming consensus is that this account really did happen. It was a story that happened in the early church. This story was witnessed and noted by the apostles themselves. And I believe this story should also be kept within brackets with the appropriate footnotes instead of removed altogether out of your Bible. In MacArthur's commentary on this text, because I know you want to know what he thinks about it, he writes, quote, this passage then was most likely not a part of the original text of John's gospel. Yet, it is beyond doubt a, an authentic fragment of apostolic tradition that describes an actual historical event from Christ's life. It contains no teaching that contradicts the rest of Scripture. The picture it paints of the wise, loving, forgiving Savior is consistent with the Bible's portrait of Jesus Christ, close quote. In other words, there is great value in what we learn and in what we read today that we could both learn and apply truth from this historical account from the ministry of Jesus. I'll give the last word to William Hendrickson. In his New Testament commentary on John, he writes, quote, Our final conclusion then is this, though it cannot be proved that this story formed an integral part of the fourth gospel, neither is it possible to establish the opposite with any degree of finality. We believe, moreover, that what is here is recorded and really did take place and contains nothing that is in conflict with the apostolic spirit. Hence, instead of removing this section from the Bible, it should be treated and used for our benefit. Ministers should not be afraid to base sermons upon it. On the other hand, all the facts concerning the textual evidence should be made known. Close quote. What do I think about it? 
I would just add to all of these observations that in God's greater providence, for whatever reason, He has allowed this story to continue in the copies that we hold of our English Bible. He certainly could have removed it if he wanted to, but in his providence, he allowed it to continue because I believe he wants us to learn something from it. And so I would appeal to you this morning not to be distracted by this technical introduction, but allow rather your heart and your mind to be riveted by this story. If nothing else, I believe that we could see this story as a fulfillment of John chapter 21, verse 25, the last verse of this gospel that says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so I would say that if this text isn't in the original, at least we have it as a record of some of the other things that Jesus did. I would also say that God has used this account in my life and in the life of the church as much as any other story that happened in the New Testament. And so this morning, we will exposit this text. This morning, I will explain this story. This morning, we will pray that God would use it to sharpen us and to shape us more into the image of Christ. This morning, I've broken down this story into four headings that will help us unpack this event and apply it in our lives. So if you're taking notes, here we go. Our first major heading is the discipleship training. The discipleship training, your first blank, if you are taking notes, is let's look at the contrast between the Jews and Christ. And there in verse 53 of chapter 7 and in verse 1 of chapter 8 says this, they each went to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. After a week-long celebration of the Feast of Booths that we've been studying in great detail, we move to what we presume to be the very next day. And on the next day, we see a contrast because all the people that attended the booth, the Feast of Booths, head to their home, and Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. You see, Jesus was from Nazareth. He was from Galilee, the hometown of his ministry, Capernaum. So he had no place to go down in the south around Jerusalem. In fact, it was Jesus that said in Matthew 8:20, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Just a subtle reminder that Jesus is not like us. Yes, he is fully God and fully man, but he is also not from this world. Jesus does not hold on to the things of this world. He doesn't crash after a long week of ministry and veg out like some of us may do by laying around the house and laying low for a few days. He doesn't even have a house to go to. So where does he go? What does he do? He goes to the Mount of Olives. It's not told what he did there, whether he went to pray or he went to sleep. We don't know. We do know, though, that he frequented the Mount of Olives on many occasions and it was located only a half a mile's walk from the Temple Mount to the east. Over and over again, we read about how in Matthew 21, 1, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives. Matthew 24, 3, and he sat 
on the Mount of Olives and began to teach His disciples at the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 26, verse 30. And they, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Mark 13, 3, as He sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew began to ask Him questions. Luke 19, 37, as He was drawing near already on the way down to the Mount of Olives. Luke twenty two thirty nine, and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. So here's what we do know. We do know that Jesus went often to the Mount of Olives to get away. We, we know that he went there to pray. We know that he would go there and take questions from his disciples. We know that he would go there to do business with God. We know that he ascended from the Mount of Olives, and the Bible tells us that the second coming, he will return just as he went up, and his feet will touch down on this same Mount of Olives. Well, I wonder if you have a place in your life like the Mount of Olives. I wonder if you have a place where you can get alone with God. I wonder if you have a place where you'd like to go to pray. Maybe it's a quiet room in your home. Maybe it's on your back deck or patio at your house. Maybe it's a cubicle in the library. Maybe it's outside under a tree. But we all need a place where we can go and get away with God. We need a place where we can go and be refreshed and spending special time with the Lord. We also see here in the beginning of verse 2 the beauty of early, your next blank, the beauty of early in the life of Christ. Verse 2 says it was early in the morning that he came again to the temple. Not only does the pattern of Scripture affirm that Jesus would regularly get alone with God, but that He would also get up early to spend that time with the Father. Mark 1, 35, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, He departed and went out to a desolate place, and there He prayed. Jesus included the concept of early as he tells the parable of the laborers of the vineyard in Matthew 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. We read in Luke chapter 21, verse 38. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. We read that the resurrection morning happened very early as well. Did you know Jesus was not raised from the dead at 1030 in the morning? Right? It was very early in the morning on the first day of the week when they, the sun had already risen that they go to the tomb and the angel reminds those who got there, he is risen. He's not there. Now, this is what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you have to get up early to be like Jesus. So I didn't say that. I'm saying Jesus got up early and often to spend time with the Lord. How do you spend time with him? Is it early? Is it sacrificing the middle part of your day? Is it staying up late at night? Because somehow, some way, in our American schedules, we've got to figure out a way to get to the Mount of Olives. We've got to figure out a way that we get away to spend time with God. And I'm just asking you to evaluate, even as we haven't got into the main part of the text, the fact that Jesus regularly did that, we would be well served to do the same. Now, another thing that we notice here in verse 2 is the next blank there in your outline says the attraction to teaching, to the teaching of Christ. There's great attraction to his ministry. There in verse 2, all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. 
Now, we know that not everyone is attracted to the teaching of Jesus. There are so many who are opposed to Christ, and they're opposed to His teaching, and they want to kill Him, or they only came to Him to have their tummies fed or to see Him do a miracle. But there are many who are attracted to good, solid Bible teaching, and no one does it better than Jesus. I love the fact that they all just came to him. It's early in the morning. Time for a sermon? You bet it is. I'm going to where Jesus is, and I want to hear him some more. We just read recently how the officers who tried to arrest him said, no one ever spoke like this man. Early in the Gospel of Mark, we read how he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we, re, we see the impact of Christ's teaching. When he finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. In Luke chapter 4, verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming forth from his mouth. And so notice that here in the Bible, we never see Jesus trying to attract a crowd with some horse and pony show. We never see Jesus doing any gimmicks or offering up some comedy routine. We never see Jesus practicing any performing arts or lowering the price of admission. Jesus' teaching is always free for everyone. Jesus' teaching is always calling people out of heart, out of hurt and out of heartache and into the joy of knowing God. Jesus' teaching is simple but profound. His teaching is expository and applicable. His teaching uses his Old Testament passages and furthers the progressive revelation of the New Testament. His teaching never attempts to exalt himself but to exalt the Father. Jesus' teaching was always spot on. His teaching always matters. His teaching changes hearts and it changes lives. His teaching instructs the mind, fills the heart, and demands surrender and service. And Jesus doesn't only teach, he disciples. And that's why we see his disciples with him so many times on the Mount of Olives. That's why we see Jesus getting up early and people flocking to him. They wanted to hear him teach, but they're also being discipled by watching him. He was available 24-7 and not just for an hour on Sunday. And so now that we've learned a little bit about the discipleship training of Jesus, let's look at the, the second heading there, the dangerous trap. The dangerous trap, your next blank says, the deplorable action of the scribes and Pharisees. Look at verse 3, where we read that the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. This brings us into the very crux of the story. In the middle of his teaching time, early on this morning, while he's opening up the Word of God and expounding the Word of God, we have this incredibly rude and dishonorable action of the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, for a people that pride themselves in being so religious and so careful to obey the law, this obvious interruption shows their utter lack of kindness or of any courtesy. Other than Nicodemus, the Pharisees were always hostile to Jesus in John's gospel. Whatever happened to the processes of church discipline that Jesus would have taught during his ministry, that if your brother is in sin, you go to him in private 
and show him his fault. And if he repents, praise the Lord. If he doesn't repent, you go with two or three with you and still in private confront this one who's in sin. And then if he doesn't confess, you bring it to the church. These scribes and these Pharisees certainly are not following that truth. Neither are they following the truth that's written later in Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, obviously, that hadn't been written yet, but I'm just saying the Pharisees aren't really following any type of protocol of really wanting to help the woman. I am not saying that the sin of adultery is not a big deal. It's a huge deal to God. What I am saying is that they approach this situation in the wrong way and with a judgmental attitude. What I am saying that if these religious leaders wanted to help this woman, then there should have been a rebuke in private, and they should have had the opportunity to deal with this situation in a much more gracious manner. Instead, they catch her, and they drag her, and they throw her down, as the NASB says, in the center of the court. They want to make a big scene about what's going on. They don't really care about her. Just the way this whole thing is going sounds a little bit suspicious to me. Your next blank says the suspicions about their story. Verse 4, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, anytime you hear the Pharisees say, teacher or rabbi, they're just kissing up. Teacher, you know, they're trying to prop him up, and then they're going to come in and try to trick him into saying something that they could condemn him about. And so, they're pretending to be respectful and nice to Jesus, but we've already read verse 6 that says, this they said to test him. That's all they really want to do. They want to catch him. They want to test him. They want to trap him. They don't really care about this woman. They care about trapping Jesus. A few observations we could make is, obviously, where is the man? Takes two to be involved in a sin like this. So where is he? Had he escaped? Had he ran and fled the scene? Was he left off the hook? Why was he not brought in? In the Bible, this sin both parties were responsible for. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So is it possible that they're giving the man an out? Maybe it was someone of great importance. Maybe it was a friend of theirs. Maybe they just didn't think that the man deserved to die. You know, apart from Christianity, in the first century, there was a lot of chauvinism. There was a lot of male dominance. It didn't happen in the church, not if they're functioning biblically, but it did happen in the culture, and too many times women were punished for far, far worse than men were for the same crime. Another question that comes to mind is, how did they even catch her in the act? This is more of a private sin, not a public sin. It's unusual to catch somebody so quickly and so positively this has all the markings of a setup. Yes, what happened was still wrong and dishonored the Lord, but it still seems like the Pharisees seem to be happy that it happened. They seem to be glad that they have this as an example, and they, they, they may have even played a part and a role 
of an accomplice in this crime. <coughs> Getting to the point here, we next see the foolproof trap, verse 5. The foolproof trap, verse 5, now in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Many times in the New Testament, the Jewish leaders tried to catch Jesus in some sort of trap. Do you remember in Matthew 12, verse 10, they find a man who has a withered hand and they asked him, is it lawful to heal the man on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Or how about Matthew 19, 3? And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him, asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Or do you remember when the Pharisees and the Sadducees worked together in Matthew 22, 34 and following, but when the Pharisees heard that they had silenced, he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, <coughs> excuse me, a lawyer asked him a question to test him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Or what about the question of marriage and marriage in heaven of Mark 12, 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? Or how about the lawyer of Luke 10, 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? How about the question of paying taxes to Caesar? <coughs> I'm saying that time and time again, the Pharisees, all they want to do is catch Jesus. They want to catch him, and, and they want to catch him in a conundrum. They want to find this awful dilemma where he would have to make a choice that would either offend somebody or offend Scripture or offend both. And so here, again, is another question where they think they have Jesus in a trap. They, they think they got him between a rock and a hard place, and there's no way he'll be able to get out of this. The Old Testament Scripture that they're referring to, and they say, hey, Moses wrote this, what do you say? Likely they're referring to Deuteronomy 22, 22 through 24, where it couldn't be more clear what was to happen. That passage says, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge evil from your midst. Appropriate text to bring into this discussion about what to do with this woman. So the Jews were expecting Jesus to say, yes, you're right. Let's stone her to death. That's what they really want. But if Jesus had said this, what would have happened to Jesus' reputation as being the friend of sinners? By this point, it's a well-known fact that Jesus ate with tax collectors and with sinners. So how could Jesus eat with a sinner on one day and stone a sinner on the next without being inconsistent with what he's already shown in his disposition towards those who sin against God? Yet at the same time, Jesus is God, and he's to uphold the character of God and to uphold the Word of God. And so wouldn't he be contradicting himself here. If he did say or didn't say, it's a mess, and they know it, and they think they've got Jesus. So how will the Lord Jesus handle this explosive situation? Well, one more thing. Let's look at the evil motive of the scribes and Pharisees. That next blank says their evil motive. Verse 6 says this, they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. 
So they got some charge they're going to bring against him. They have an evil motive at heart. Excuse me for just a second. It's got a little tickle in my throat that I can't get rid of. Good thing we're not on the radio, huh? <clears throat> All right. So there's this evil motive in their heart. The motive of the scribes and Pharisees was to catch Jesus, to convict Jesus, and then to crucify him. And they were not trying to learn. They're not coming with a teachable spirit. They don't want to understand. They're not trying to do anything except catch Jesus saying or doing something that was based uh, against their law so they could accuse him and remove him from the earth. That's all they want to do. Matthew 16, 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. Matthew 21, 22, 18, they came to put him to the test. And Jesus says, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Luke talks about the same thing in Luke 11, 53 and 54. Bottom line, they wanted Jesus dead. And our culture is the same way today. People don't want to listen to Jesus or reason with the truths of the Bible. People want to live their lives without being interrupted or interfered with. And they throw out questions all the time that they think as Christians we can't answer or the Bible can't answer without us contradicting ourselves. Therefore, they don't have to believe a thing Jesus says and essentially they can crucify him and put him to silence because there's no answer. People want to do whatever they want to do, and they want to be praised and never confronted. They want their wishes granted and never denied. They want to be seen as being right and never exposed for being wrong. Well, let's now move to our third heading. Let's look at the dramatic tension that we're right in the midst of. Your next blank says, waiting on Jesus' response. There in the middle of verse 6, we read how they, they brought her to him, and Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger, on the ground. Now, what in the world did Jesus write on the ground? They're in the middle of saying, what are you going to do, Jesus? And he bends down and begins to doodle in the dirt. And what did he write? We have no idea. If you think you have an idea, you don't have an idea. We could speculate, oh, the possibilities are endless. Some have said that he didn't write anything in the sand. He's just doodling. Others say that he was trying to draw out the tension of the moment, and it was a stall tactic trying to come up with a good response to their difficult question. Still others say that he's drawing up a theological comeback play like a bunch of kids playing sandlot football. Well, some of those are ridiculous, but I think there's actually some possible answers that carry more merit than that. Others say that in the light of the Feast of Booths, and the plea that Jesus had given to come to the fountain of living water, that maybe Jesus is writing Jeremiah 17, 13 in the dirt. That verse says, those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Some believe that Jesus wrote Exodus 23, 1 in the ground. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Still others think that Jesus was trying to point to the fact that Jesus was there when the law of Moses was written, and he's trying to remind them that he supersedes the law because he wrote the law according to Exodus 31, verse 18, and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on the Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So some are saying, well, 
Christ is saying, I, I wrote the law of Moses. That was my law. I, I am the finger of God that wrote that law on that day. So who are you trying to tell me that I can't d- handle the situation, even though the law says what it's going to say, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and we'll see here in a moment exactly what he does. Others believe that Jesus is writing the names of the sins of each one of the scribes and Pharisees who were accusing this woman who were guilty of the same sin or a similar sin. Again, the fact is we have no idea what Jesus wrote on the ground. It is important for us not to read into the text what we don't know. It's better for us just to be in awe of the ultimate wisdom of Christ to reveal what he wants to reveal to us when he reveals it to us, and that is sufficient for us. And so let's listen to his words. Your next blank, listening to his words. Verse 7, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. They continued to ask him. They're pressing in. They're persisting. They demanded an answer. And so Jesus stood up and gave them one. Let him who is without sin throw the first stone. This statement is simple. It's profound. This is Jesus' statement. This is how he answers these difficult questions about who do we pay taxes to when he says, render unto Caesar the thing that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus had a way of being short and to the point and being brilliant with his divine wisdom all at the same time. And in this one simple statement, he flips the script, the joke is now on them. For Jesus knows that according to the Old Testament law, the eyewitness of a crime deserving of death were to be the first to throw the stones at the guilty person. Deuteronomy 13, 9 and 17, 7. And so now we have to be very careful here. Jesus' masterful answer neither minimized the sin of adultery nor did it claim that the church has no responsibility in holding each other accountable for our sin. Jesus is rather exposing the wrong motive of the hypocritical Pharisees who wanted to punish a woman though they were guilty of the same or worse sin. The Pharisees were guilty of spiritual pride. The Pharisees were guilty of blasphemy. The Pharisees were guilty for wanting to murder Jesus, who was an innocent man. So he's simply saying to them, how in the world can you stone this woman when you've committed crimes that are equally deserving of death, and yet you don't stone yourselves? You could refer to judge not lest you be judged here in its proper context, reminds us that we first must clean out our own heart so that we can see clearly to remove the speck out of our brother's eye. That's what God calls us to do. We are to judge one another according to Scripture, but only in humility and only in the holiness God provides positionally before Him. And as we're walking regularly with Him, we have no business being hypocritical about hiding sin in our own closet while going after others. And so Jesus is calling these scribes and these Pharisees to repent of an equal or greater sin. So how do they respond? Verses 8 and 9, I'd like to say that they respond by wasting an opportunity. They're wasting an opportunity. Let me explain 
what I mean here, verses 8 and 9, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Once more he wrote on the ground, but when they heard what he said, the older ones left first, and then the younger ones later. Why the older ones first? Maybe at this point their consciences were convicting them of their own sin. The ones who had lived the longest knew they had sinned the most. The older ones knew that the debate was over, that they had lost again. The older ones may have known that the best thing to do at this point is to lay our stones down and to walk away. Now, that may seem admirable, that they didn't go through with stoning this woman. But what I'm telling you today is they missed an opportunity. They missed an opportunity to repent of their own sin. You see, this is pardoning day. Jesus is there to give mercy and to give grace to all those who are repentant. And while the Pharisees are exposed as the sinners that they were, they walked away from the only one who could ever cleanse them of their sin. This was their time to say, me too, Lord. I'm guilty as charged. Please forgive me of my sin. The fact is, whether you're a convicted sinner like this adulterous woman or you're a prideful Christian filled with hypocrisy in how you handle life, we all need the grace of God. We all need equally to be forgiven of our sin and to confess our sin before Christ, knowing that if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and yet they missed this opportunity. We know that Isaiah says that though your sins were like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What a shame. What a shame that they walked away. Would it be that they would have all seen their sin and repented in that moment? And what a shame if you're hearing this story this morning, and you know that there is hidden sin in your life. And you walk away this morning saying, oh, how shameful for that adulterous woman in the act. What a shame if we act like that. We are all guilty. We are all in need of forgiveness this morning. And it's available for you today through Christ and His love for you. It's available in the gospel for you. And that leads us to our final heading, the divine teaching of Christ in verses 10 and 11, no one can condemn you, your next blank. If you're in Christ, if you are forgiven, no one can condemn you. Verse 10, we read this, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now, look at all that's in that one verse at this moment for the very first time. The woman is spoken to directly and is asked a straightforward question, woman, where are they? Don't be distracted by the word woman. That's a kind way that Jesus interacted with his mother in John chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana. It's the same way he interacted with his mom while he's on the cross. And he said, woman, behold your son. This is not a derogatory term where Jesus is backhanding her while she's on the crown saying woman in some negative way. It's actually a kind thing that he's addressing her face to face, loving her and asking her a great question he says again, woman, where are they? It's a reminder, nobody can condemn you. 
Nobody can judge you, ultimately, right? We're to be held accountable and help each other, but no one is your judge except God. Don't fear the judgment of man. Fear him who can throw your body and soul into hell. We have a greater judge and a greater judgment to fear. Only God can condemn you. But guess what? If you repent, if you confess your sins, He will forgive you. He will give you new life. You will be born again. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What a beautiful reminder that none of these people have the right to condemn her. And in the next verse, in your next blank, says this, forgiven people are not condemned. She said, no one, Lord. So she realizes, hey, nobody's condemning me. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. No one could condemn this woman except Jesus. Don't you see it? He's the only one that was without sin. He's the only one that in that moment have every right to pick up a stone and stone her to death. And yet he chose in the kindness of the Lord to lead her to repentance. And it is inferred in this text that she did repent and that he did forgive her. And how can this be? How could he act like that? I mean, the issue that is at stake here is the whole idea again about how can God be a holy God and how can he also be a loving God? How can he keep his law, be holy as I am holy, and at the same time be a God of love? And the answer to that is the gospel. The answer to that is Jesus Christ did uphold the law of God perfectly, and he who knew no sin became sin for you, that you might in him become the righteousness of God. This whole story points us to the gospel. Jesus does keep his law. He died in that lady's place, and he died in your place today if you repent and believe in him so that you can be forgiven. So what we're actually seeing in this passage is not a story of condemnation. We're seeing a story of redemption, a story of grace, a story where Jesus looks at her and says, neither do I condemn you. Now, there's some here in this church this morning that need to hear that message. You've been wearing a scarlet letter for years. It's time to let it go. It's time to confess your sin once and for all and experience the love and the grace and the patience and the kindness of the Lord. It's time for you to realize that He loves you, that He forgives you, and that your sin is paid in full on the cross. What a blessed story this is. You know what? For years, I didn't understand why Jesus just wouldn't stone her. In my youth and in my self-righteousness, I was always like, yeah, give it to her. She deserves it until I realize that I am that woman. I am guilty. Jesus says, whoever has looked at a woman lustfully has committed adultery in his heart. One day, I just saw that as the Holy Spirit, you know, you would think it's obvious, but I remember just realizing, I deserve to be stoned. I deserve to be killed. The wages of my sin is death. And yet he's shown me the grace of forgiveness through the cross. God loves us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Today, you can say, if you're in Christ, such were some of us. We used to be that way, but not anymore. 
You know, just this morning, we've already sang so many songs that put this into perspective, but this morning as I'm driving in, I'm listening to Sidewalk Prophets and that song, You Love Me Any Way, completely wrecked me on my way in this morning. I am the thorn in your crown, but you love me anyway. I am the sweat from your brow, but you love me anyway. I am the nail in your wrist, but you love me anyway. I am Judas's kiss, but you love me anyway. See, now I am the man who yelled out from the crowd for your blood to be spilled on this earth-shaking ground. Yes, I then turned away with a smile on my face, with this sin in my heart, tried to bury your grace, and then alone in the night, I still call out for you, so ashamed of my life. But you loved me anyway. Oh God, how you love me. Yes, you love me anyway. It's like nothing in life that I've ever known. Yes, you love me anyway. Oh Lord, how you love me. Do you see it this morning here in this story that he loves you anyway? No matter how much sin you've committed, no matter how bad it is, he loves you and leads you to forgiveness in the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says at the end of verse 11, your last blank, from now on, sin no more. What a perfect ending to seeing grace and then seeing a challenge here. Jesus desires us to be progressing in our sanctification. So he does say, I don't condemn you, but you know what? I want you to go from this place, from this sin, from this situation, and from now on, sin no more. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. For sin will not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. We're to put off our old self, be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and to put on the new self in Christ. You know, as we've looked at this story today, I hope that you've been challenged and encouraged. And one thing that I think needs to be pointed out on this text is the power of the conscience. The reason that the Pharisees walked away was because their consciences reminded them that they too were guilty. But they walked away with their consciences convicting them and they did nothing about it. If you're here this morning and your conscience is convicting you, I hope that you'll respond not like the Pharisee, but like the woman who threw herself on the mercy of Christ. And being forgiven of her guilty conscience, she walked away cleansed by the blood of Christ. J.C. Ryle writes on this text, quote, Conscience is a most important part of our inward man and plays a most prominent part in our spiritual history. It cannot save us. It never yet led anyone to Christ, yet conscience is not to be despised. It is the minister's best friend when he stands up to rebuke sin from the pulpit. It is the mother's best friend when she tries to restrain her children from evil and quicken them to good. It is the teacher's best friend when he presses home on boys and girls their moral duties, happy is he who never stifles his conscience but strives to keep it tender. Still happier is he who prays to have it enlightened by the Holy Ghost and sprinkled with Christ's blood. How's your conscience doing this morning? This is an opportunity 
and a service like this and a story like this for you to come and to be cleansed and to repent of your sins. So let me ask you these questions here in the take-home section. Have you ever been caught in the act of a particular sin? Have you? Think about when you were a child. Did you ever get caught red-handed? Think about it as a teenager and a college student. You ever been busted? Think about it as an adult. Anybody ever walked in on you when you were in some sin? Have you been caught? The truth is we've all been caught because God's omnipresence, he knows and sees it all. Second, have you ever treated anyone like these Pharisees treated this woman? Have you ever been so self-righteous that you just wanted to cook another Christian when they finally got caught in some grave sin? Third, have you ever realized that if you are in Christ, you are not condemned, but are encouraged to go and sin no more? If you're in Christ this morning, receive the forgiveness that our Lord offers, and I pray that you would leave this place sinning no more. Maybe some of you need to sit for a while in your seat. Maybe some of you need to come up after we close in prayer here in just a moment and kneel here at this altar and confess your sin to the Lord. Maybe some of you just need to go home to your Mount of Olives, to that quiet place and say, Lord, I just need to come clean with some things in my life. May God help us as a church to respond how he wants us to as we consider this story about the woman caught in a, the act of adultery and we consider the fact that Christ looks at us and if we're forgiven, says, I don't condemn you, but I want you to go and sin no more. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to um, just think about this, this service, to think about this passage, to think about the truths, the implications, the application your spirit would bring in each heart to show us how we could leave here challenged, convicted, encouraged, blessed, forgiven. Just affirm in our hearts, Lord, what you would want us to do in response to this message. And as we sing this last song, may we think about how much you love us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.